Well, this morning, if you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If you're using the, the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 832. And we'll be reading in just a minute Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 17 through 30. And we'll read that, as I said, in just a minute. But what we see this morning in our passages, we're going to see the sovereign Lord continuing to embrace his lot of suffering. Last week, we we saw the opponent's plan, the the religious leaders and the the chief priests, specifically Caiaphas, the high priest, that they were waiting to arrest Jesus until after the feast of the Passover. And in what would be a, a shocking plot twist, one of the 12 Judas Iscariot, he goes to the chief priest and he agreed to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. And Judas, after accepting 30 pieces of silver, Matthew says that from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Thus we saw last week and have continued to see that this road towards the cross, it's paved with the ill intentions of the religious leaders. They hate Jesus. They've tried to trap him. They've tried to trick him. And they failed again and again and again as their plans have been frustrated. But now, as Matthew's gospel reaches its climax, we see their desire to destroy Jesus slowly moving towards fulfillment. And it's being fulfilled with, as these bad actors, as these, these individuals plot and scheme, Judas being the most recent convert to the dark side. However, none of that withstanding, something that that Steph pointed out last week and something that Matthew continues to emphasize is that while these human actors continue to plot and plan, there's another reality that paves the road to the cross. And that second reality, what I would say is that greater reality, reality, the more comforting and stabilizing reality, is that this road to suffering is paved from beginning to end by the sure and certain will of a supremely sovereign God. You see, the departure of Judas, while tragic, it does not occur outside of the decreed will of God. He goes as it is written, Jesus will say in a moment. You see, Jesus has made prediction after prediction that he's going to Jerusalem and that he's going to be handed over, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified. None of this is foreign to the one walking this road to the cross. It's not a surprise to him. He knows what lies ahead because he knows the will of his Father. And in this sense, the enemies of Jesus and God the Father are united in their desire for the Son to be killed. And that's what we're going to see, that there's these evil actors and there's the supreme will of God and their plans are going to coalesce in the crucifixion of the Son, and both getting what they want. In the coming suffering and death of Jesus, we're going to see is the the culmination, not just of the plotting of evil men, but also the culmination of the will of the sovereign God, both events, both streams coming together in the same event. And what Matthew wants us to see as we continue working through these events of the Passion Week is that this unfolding plan, though apparently tragic, though it's hard for us to watch sometimes, though seemingly out of control, it's actually none of those. Instead, this unfolding plan is the culmination of God's eternal plan of redemption. 
whereby a sovereign and loving God would make a way through the suffering and death of his son for sinful men and women to be forgiven of their sins and to have eternal life with him. That's what's happening. That's what's being carried out on the scenes of our passage this morning. And so we're going to see Jesus transforming this this Passover meal, showing how this meal was meant always to point to him as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along as I read. I'm going to begin in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 26, and I'll read through verse 30. Matthew writes this. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when it was evening, he, that is Jesus, reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, one, say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray before we look at these verses together. Fathers, we just sang, you are a holy God, and we like, like Isaiah or like Peter in the midst of a display of your, your glory, we out of necessity, cry out, woe is me. And we ask, how, how can we stand before a holy God? Well, it's because you, the holy God, have rescued us from our failing. And you, you've done so by offering your only son. And as a result of the work that Christ has done, you invite us to call you Father. And so we worship you, holy God, but also loving Father this morning. And we ask as we, as we look at, at this intimate scene where, where Jesus, your son, is, is on the verge of going to the cross and he's having this intimate fellowship with those closest to him. And even though a betrayer is in the midst, he offers bread and wine as, as symbols, representations of his very body and blood that would be broken and shed the very next day, so that sins might be forgiven. And so as as we remember this, as we study this and think about your word this morning, would you encourage us specifically in rejoicing and remembering that Christ has died for our sins? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we work through 
the, the passage this morning. Uh, there, there's three points, and, and, and we'll work through these one at a time. So first, we'll see preparing the Passover, verses 17 through 19. And then secondly, we'll see identifying the betrayer, which is there in verses 20 through 25. And then finally, transforming the meal, probably the most, the most well-known of our passage, verses 26 through 30, the transforming of the meal. So we'll work through those. If you're taking notes, that's a good outline for you to kind of write down and, and help you keep track of the time so you know where I'm going. I've told you beforehand. Uh, so we start there with the first point, preparing the Passover, verses 17 through 19. So look, look there again at verse 17. So Matthew says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where are we going to eat the Passover? Where will you prepare, where you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so as we, as we come into the, the, the end of Holy Week and we near, get, get nearer to the crucifixion of Jesus, I just want to point out that this, this, this scene, there's a lot of discussion surrounding the exact day of the week that this is occurring. Specifically, if Jesus and the disciples, as, as they gather in the upper room, are they, are they gathering on the actual night that the Passover was observed with the rest of the city of Jerusalem? Or are they meeting a day early? And, and the reason there's a lot of discussion that I just want you to be aware of is that when you, we, when you have the synoptic gospels, when you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have their accounts, you can, you can pretty much harmonize them. But John, who, who he, he's like the rogue gospel writer who's writing all stuff, or, or I think it's 80% of his gospel is not in the others, but, but he had some details that, that make it difficult to, to harmonize the, the specific uh, timing of this. And so when you try and harmonize, people say, well, well, it has to be this day or it has to be that day. For, personally, I believe that Jesus probably is gathering a, a night before the rest of Jerusalem. I think this is probably a, a pre-official Passover meal, though Jesus certainly understands this to be a celebration of the Passover. I think because of the, the events that are coming, I think Jesus will be in, in the midst of trial and crucifixion when the official Passover is observed. Um, so I think this is probably uh, uh, an early observance of the day. Uh, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because Jesus, gathering them as we'll see, he, he understands this to be the Passover, and it's this Passover feast that, that he is commemorating and transforming with his disciples in the upper room. And so what Matthew says, verse 17, uh, that the teacher says, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover. Actually, that, that's verse 18, He's, he wants them to, to prepare the Passover, and so if you ask Matthew, what, what meal was Jesus observing with his disciples? The clear answer is the Passover. And so as, as we look at this passage, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the Passover? Okay, it's a meal where, where people have come to Jerusalem, but, but what's the significance? What part does it play? Well, the, this Passover was part of a, a larger feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which at this point was an eight-day feast, a specific festival, which was one of the most important events in Israel's, the Jewish people's religious calendar. And this celebration of the Passover, it, it pointed back to something. It pointed back to an event, which was the seminal, the constitutive event in the formation of Israel's identity as a nation. The Passover was, was a major event because it looked back to the time when the Lord had delivered his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And so, one, one New Testament scholar explains, while Moses and the Israelites, we're, we're Old Testament now, while Moses and the Israelites were, were chafing under Egyptian bondage, God inflicted a series of plagues on the Egyptians in order to compel Pharaoh to release the Israelites. And so there's a whole series of plagues, the tenth and final plague being the death 
of all the firstborn in Egypt. So the, the death angel of death passes over all of Egypt and the firstborn male in every household is killed. This is a tenth and final plague, except in the houses whose door frames or doorposts were marked with the blood of a slaughtered lamb. And so the Lord says, I will pass over your house if, if your house is marked by the blood of a lamb that was slain. And so this is the Passover that then leads to the Exodus where, where Pharaoh says, that's enough, get out of here. And so the Passover and the Exodus, they, they, they form this, this huge event in the life of Israel. And so every year from that day on, Israel, as God's people, observed this feast. This event had shaped and solidified the nation of Israel. In the Passover and in the Exodus which followed, God was declaring to Pharaoh and to the entire watching world, these are my people. I am their God. And this Exodus displays God's covenant commitment. He's their covenant-keeping God, and it shaped them as a people. So they would remember this event every year. They'd celebrate and remember the Passover. The, the, the words of institution of, of the Passover, listen to Exodus 12, when, when the Lord is commanding Moses and Aaron to, to tell the people this. He says, They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and the staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all those in on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. And so that's Exodus 12. And from Exodus 12 forward, this was a, a foundational event in the life of Israel on their calendar because it reminded them of who they were. It reminded them that they were God's people, that God had acted for them, that salvation had been experienced by the Israelites because of God's activity, his action on their behalf. He delivered them. He saved them. And as long as they observed this, this Passover feast, they would never forget the salvation that God had worked for them. And so this is the festival that's taking place as Jesus and his disciples are gathering in the upper room. The, the city of Jerusalem was packed every time at this year because all the Jews would come to the city. The Passover was to be observed within the city limits. So the city is, is exploding with people coming to observe this feast. And because Jesus and his disciples are Jewish people, they are observing this meal together. So when the disciples ask in verse 17, well, where do you want us to prepare? He answers, go into the city to a certain man and say, the teacher says, my time's at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house. Verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Matthew is, is really scant on details here. He doesn't give any additional details. He's not concerned about the specifics of, of the man carrying the pail of water or what he's going to say. He simply says, that, go to this, this house, tell this man that this is what is going to happen. And they did just as Jesus had directed them. Which is Matthew's his, his cue to us that this is not out of control. Jesus is perfectly in control. He knows what's 
going on, whether he's predicting and knows what man's going to be where, or whether he had prior conversations with this individual. Jesus is in control. The disciples do what he says, and they prepared the Passover, which would involve taking a lamb to the temple to be slaughtered, and preparing herbs, and getting bread, and getting wine, and, and having a room prepared. And so that's what they do. They prepare the Passover, which leads to the second point, the, the identification of the betrayer. Look there at verse 20. When it was evening, so it's that same night, assuming, it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. They're observing the Passover. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they, that his disciples, they were very, very sorrowful. They began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Am I the one? Is it, is it me that's going to betray? And he answered, he who's dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better for that man if he had not been born. Now before you look at this announcement of the betrayer, notice this announcement is made while they're eating. Right? It's fascinating to recognize that, that this eating, that they are observing the Passover. And, and the Passover, it was laid out very specifically. It was a very liturgical meal. It followed a very specific order. In fact, here, here's a, just a rundown of what would happen, this, this celebration. There would be, it would start with a blessing, a, a blessing probably from one of the Psalms and the taking of a first cup of wine. And, and then some food would be brought in. And, and then in, in the Jewish families, the, the youngest child would, would ask the father, why are we doing this? And he would recite the deliverance of the Israelites from Exodus. And, and then they would praise God for his deliverance. And that was part of this, this feast, this celebration and remembrance. And then would be a second cup of wine. And then there would be unleavened bread broken and passed. And then would come the official meal with, with the, the lamb who was, who was slain, would, would be enjoyed. And, and there would be a third cup of wine. And then a singing of one of the psalms. And then a fourth cup of wine would conclude the meal. And we see that this is what Jesus and his disciples are doing. And that, in fact, that's why we included verse 30 in this passage, because it says, after they'd sung a hymn, they leave. This is the, them observing the Passover. And so in, in verse 21, they're, they're reclining at a table. They're, they're, we don't know where in the order they are, but they are observing this. And Jesus makes an announcement. Verse 21, truly I say to you, one of you, one of you will betray me. Which... I think we can recognize it's a strange thing to say at this point during this meal. Right? They're celebrating God's act of deliverance, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And Jesus, just as he desired to share this intimate meal with his disciples, so too he wanted them to be aware of what was coming. His betrayal is not off his radar. In fact, in all four gospel accounts, there's this announcement of, one of you will betray me. And after this, this statement, Matthew records it as, as though Jesus just lets it linger. Like it's going to happen. But he doesn't want them to yet know the identity of the betrayer. Notice verse 21, they, they don't, uh, assumingly, uh, they don't know what to do. And so they, they, they begin being very sorrowful and, and shocked and surprised. And so they one after another start saying, well, is it I, Lord? And, and they're asking him, not because they want to know the answer. In fact, they're asking because they want Jesus to confirm that it's not them. 
Right? They're sorrowful, they're surprised, they're shocked, and they, they almost can't believe that one of them is going to betray, and, and no one wants to be the betrayer. So they say, well, it's not me, is it? Certainly Peter would expect, well, well no, of course, Peter, it's not you. John, I know you. You're not going to be the one. Don't worry. Right? But, but he will not relieve that tension. Jesus maintains the anonymity of the betrayer. He simply restates the fact. Look at verse 23. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And as we read Matthew's account, I, I say that Jesus maintains the anonymity of the betrayer because at this point, after hearing this announcement, all 12 would look at their hands and see evidence of having dipped their hand in the dish. Right? That's the type of meal this is. They're all eating together. It's a fellowship meal. And so Jesus will not give further details about the identity of the betrayer, other than to say, again, it is one of the 12, one of those eating here at this table in this space with us. And this just highlights the enormity of the betrayal. One in the innermost circle, in this inner room, sharing this intimate meal with Jesus, is one of them is going to be the betrayer, which, as you think about it, would have been truly shocking for at least 11 of the 12 gathered with him. And notice verse 24, Jesus continues. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So, so we shouldn't miss the way first. Jesus identifies himself, continues to identify himself as the Son of Man. But he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written, which is simply to say, the Scriptures prophesied, predicted, declared that the Son of Man must suffer, that, that, that there would be a suffering servant. He goes as it is written. So as Jesus is telling his disciples, he is communicating to them there is a divine necessity that, that, that characterizes his going to the cross. In fact, it's characterized his entire ministry. I must go to Jerusalem. I must be crucified. I must be handed over. These are things upon which the salvation of mankind are dependent. Therefore, they must happen. There's not a world in which the Son of Man would not go. Jesus wants his disciples to know as he has continued to let them know at every step of the way that his suffering, his crucifixion, that these are not a, a series of unfortunate events. He goes as it is written according to the will of the Father. And so Jesus is, is comforting them. He goes. It must be. But that's not all that Jesus says, is it? The Son of Man goes as it is, as it is written, truth number one, but, truth number two, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now, why would Jesus add that? Why should Jesus add a note about the betrayer? Why should he add a note about one of the twelve sitting with them? What's his point? Surely, he could have not said that. The Son of Man goes as is written, so don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. But he adds... But woe to the man. There's a balance here. He goes as it is written, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. And his point is to highlight not the role of the betrayer, but the responsibility of the betrayer. Jesus wants to make very clear that the divine will, the divine necessity of the death of the Son of Man, in no way excuses the seriousness, the, the evil, the guilt of the sin of betraying the Son of Man. So that it will not do for Judas to say, the devil made me do it. Or even, God made me do it. 
The divine necessity for the sacrifice of the Son of Man, grounded in the word of God, does not excuse or mitigate the crime of betrayal. This is not an instance of divine overruling. Judas is not a robot. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both involved in Judas's treason. Judas, although acting in perfect accord with God's sovereign will, he is not a robot. He is doing exactly what his heart desires to do. Sovereign will of God and the human will of Judas Iscariot are both at work, compatibly, not at odds with each other, but compatibly working together. So we ask, was it God's will that Jesus be betrayed and crucified? Yes, of course. The Son of Man goes as it is written. Did Judas act in accordance with God's sovereign will? Yes, the Son of Man goes as it is written. Did Judas do exactly what he wanted to do? Of course he did. Woe to him. Did God's sovereign will eliminate the freedom or the free will of Judas? Of course not. According to Jesus, woe to him. He is responsible for betraying the Son of Man such that it would have been better if he had never been born than to face the consequence and penalty for what he did. It will not do for Judas to say, I didn't have free will because I was carrying out God's sovereign will. And we must be careful not to create conflict where Scripture doesn't. We just heard last week, Judas went to the chief priest and said, what are you going to give me if I deliver him over to you? And they said, here's 30 pieces of silver. He said, that's enough. And from that moment on, sought an opportunity to betray him. And in so doing, Judas made a little money and probably thought his arrangement was still unknown. But here Jesus wants Judas to know that he knows. Look at verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Judas joins in to to the the questioning of the disciples. Matthew doesn't record whether the, the other disciples hear this interaction or, or what their response is if they did here, all Matthew says is Judas asked this question almost identically to the other disciples other than instead of saying, is it I, Lord? Notice Judas changes the word and says, is it I, Rabbi? Which I think that has to mean something. But Judas asked the question so that all that Jesus has to do is say, you've said so. You said it, not me. You, you're the one who said it. Which is enough for Judas to know that he is not acting under the cover of anonymity in the mind of Christ, the one he is going to betray. However, Judas will still go through with his plan. He will not be deterred. He had received his 30 pieces of silver, but he would pay for his sin. He would not escape. So that Jesus says it would be better if he had never been born at all. Which leads to us, the, the final point, the transformation of the meal, verses 26 through 30. These are the most familiar verses probably in our passage. Look there, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and we had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. And so here we have in the upper room, Jesus and disciples are gathered for the celebration of the Passover. And Jesus transforms this meal. He transforms it by by issuing these words of institution. He he institutes a a new meal, a, a fulfillment of the Passover, a transformation of the Passover. This is 
a new meal. And the words of Jesus here have been remembered by those who follow him throughout the ages. The church has remembered and has partaken in this meal because of what Jesus says in this room. And what's significant about this meal and what Jesus says is that what is to be remembered and what's to be proclaimed over and over again, notice it's not, observe this meal and remember my birth. It's not observe this meal and remember my life. It's not observe this meal and remember my miracles, but observe this meal and remember my death. It is the death of Christ, the the body that was broken on the cross and the blood that was shed on the cross that, that Jesus institutes a meal and commands his disciples to remember his death. His death is what transforms the Passover. We're reminded again the context of Jerusalem at this time. That this Last Supper is taking place during the Passover, and that's not a coincidence. And so when, it, when, when Matthew says, as they were eating, he, he means they're eating the Passover, and as this, this meal that they've observed for many, many years, there, there's a twist. Jesus takes the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. At a meal where the, the Passover lamb was always the highlight of the meal, and a lamb that would have been slaughtered as a reminder of God's saving acts and delivering his people from Egypt, Jesus says, this bread is my body. Jesus, transforming this meal that had served as an annual reminder of the foundational event in the formation of God's people, is transforming it by declaring in no, certain, no uncertain terms, this meal that we're observing, it's about me. I'm the lamb. This bread and all of the baggage that comes with it through the ages, it's about me. In essence, Jesus, by instituting this meal at this time, is clearly teaching his disciples and us that the entire storyline of the Bible, the entire history of God's dealing with with broken and sinful people, specifically his, his mercy in providing a way of salvation, all of it, is and has always been about Jesus. And more specifically about his sacrificial death on the cross. I mean, just it's hard to imagine the significance of what, what Jesus is saying in this room with these 12 men. For the Jewish people, their origin, their, their history as a people was tied to this celebration, this Passover. It was remembered and observed every year. All the Jewish children knew about the Passover. All the Jewish families ordered their lives around being in the city. We're going on a trip to Jerusalem because we're observing the Passover. We're we're praising God. We're thanking God for what he did among our fathers. That's what they did. That's how their lives were ordered. And here is Jesus, the audacity of this man to gather together a group of Jewish men at the very time of Passover and say it's not actually about looking backwards. But instead, it's about looking forward to tomorrow and what's going to happen on the cross when the Passover lamb will be slain. As he talks with them, the disciples think they've prepared the Passover lamb, but but he's actually already been prepared in their midst. And he's preparing to go be slaughtered and slain. And he says, this is my body. And the same is true of the cup. Look at verse 27. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it. That's an imperative. Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, or the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
In fact, that word giving thanks, some, some of us Baptists are uneasy with the word Eucharist, but, but Eucharist is, is just the word for giving thanks. That, that's where the Eucharist was named because he gave thanks. But he commands, he gives thanks, and he commands his disciples to drink of it. Why? Because for this is my blood of the new covenant. And so in, in, in doing this, Jesus is saying both the bread and the wine are identified as the body and the blood, which would be broken and shed for his disciples. And so the primary focus is the death of Jesus that's going to occur. As the fulfillment of the Passover, as the, the culminating act of God's deliverance in saving his people. But, but also realize that, that this death was for his people. Jesus is freely giving the elements out. And these elements, though, bread and wine, they, they symbolize his body and blood. And he's saying, this, take and eat, partake of this bread and this blood. It's, it's going to be shed for you. There, there's this generosity in the lamb before he is slain. It's, it's a willing offer of salvation to any who would come to the table. It's a beautiful picture. We'll say more about that in just one second. But again, this meal being observed the night before he would go to the cross presents Jesus an opportunity to make very clear that his death is going to accomplish something. His death will not be some rogue group of religious leaders or civil leaders effectively plotting together to kill their opponent. Rather, his death will be the Son of Man going to the cross, laying down his life, giving his body to be broken, shedding his blood in order to establish his people and a new covenant. That's what's going on here. And in contrast, this new covenant wouldn't simply be about deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh. It wouldn't be about a law to be given on stone tablets for, for people to keep and perform sacrifices in order to maintain one's standing. Instead, this new covenant would be a covenant that promised, guaranteed, secured the forgiveness of sins. Because the blood of this new covenant was not the blood of a, a lamb or a goat or an animal. It was the blood, the precious blood, more precious than gold and silver, of the Son of God shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we look at this passage and this, this, this intimate gathering, I cannot do better than to point you to the significance of what this meal represents. At the end of the day, what we behold happening between Jesus and his disciples is the ta- in the taking of bread and wine is only significant because the one sharing the meal would go to the cross. And so the supper is about Jesus and his death on the cross. And, and so I just, I just want to leave you with a few things from this as, as we seek to, to process this and apply this. I mean, the first reality is there is a new covenant In this moment, Jesus has yet to be crucified, but in our moment, he has been crucified, buried, and raised. There is a new covenant. Clearly, Jesus does not not see his passion as a tragedy or an error, but the crowning act of his ministry in which he pours out his blood as the once-for-all sacrifice which secures redemption for man. In the death of Christ, there is a new covenant established. And, and this new covenant is mediated, not by some human priest, but by, by the divine man, Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, who is not only the high priest of the new covenant, but he's the lamb that's slain in the establishing of the new covenant. And his blood speaks a better word than any blood ever before could ever speak. Because by his blood, by his death, in the place of sinners, sins are forgiven. 
I'll remember their sins no more because they've been paid for by the Son. His death is a once-for-all sacrifice that redeems completely, securely, eternally those who come to Christ. If your trust is in the Son, your sins are forgiven now and forever. It is a new covenant. It is much better, much superior than the old covenant. And so the supper, it's not about the bread and the juice. It's about the death of Christ in the place of sinners. And the point is to remember and point back to that death, which is the promise of pardon and the assurance of salvation. The significance of the Lord's Supper is found in the reality of the suffering Savior, which is why we're not observing it this morning, but but when we observe the Lord's Supper as a church, it is not for non-Christians. It's why we we fence the table as we do when we urge non-Christians to abstain. Because to partake of the elements without faith in the substance is to miss the point completely. If your faith isn't in Christ, you're just, you're just eating bread. Sometimes it's better than other times, but you're just eating bread and drinking grape juice. If your faith is not in Christ, you're missing the point. And so it's not for those whose faith is not in Christ. A new covenant has been established, and the, the substance of the new covenant is not the symbols, but it's the reality, which is Christ crucified. And so if you're here and you're, not a, you're, you're a non-Christian, you're, you're not a Christian, your faith is not in Jesus, I don't, care, I don't care how long you've been in church, I don't care what you believe, I don't care what you've heard, the gospel is a message of Christ dying in the place of sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent suffering as guilty, a body broken and bloodshed in order that sinful men and women, if they turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ, might be saved. Your sin is not too much for the death of Christ. It's not. You may think that you're as bad as you can be. You may think you're you're worse than what Christ could save. And and the death of the Son of Man on your behalf says otherwise. Paid in full, the Son of God laid down his life that your sins might be forgiven. And so non-Christian, if you would turn from your sin and put your faith in the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of sins, if you will trust in Christ, you will be saved. You'll be reconciled to God. Your sins will be forgiven and you will be given eternal life. And that's all, that's all offered at the table for you. But it comes only through faith in the one who laid down his life in the place of those who deserve death. And just so you know, that's me. That's every believer. We confess Christ died for our sins. And this is the gospel, and we we would urge you, I would would implore you to put your faith in Christ. You'll be accepted and received. Your sins will be forgiven, but apart from faith in him, there is no forgiveness of sins, only the way of Judas. And so don't go the way of Judas. The second point that that I I have to address here is, is the presence of Jesus in the supper. This is the the major issue that's led to great division within the the visible church throughout church history, between Protestants and Catholics, but but also between Protestant groups of of Lutherans or Baptists or Presbyterians and many more. So so the question we ask is, what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body? What does he mean when he says, this is my blood? The plain meaning of our Lord's words and what I and our church and what all Protestants have affirmed to some extent at least, is what he means is that this bread 
represents my body. This blood represents my blood, which is to say that what Jesus does not mean is that the bread and the wine were literally, corporally, his body and blood. We do not believe that the bread and the wine are somehow transformed or transubstantiated, which means to change substance. We don't don't believe that, that when I or Pastor Will, when we stand there and we pray for the elements, we don't believe that something happens to them, which is actually a good thing because I've forgotten to pray for it before, and you'd be in bad luck if that was the case. We don't believe that it's transubstantiated. There are the, the Roman Catholic Church believes that something happens to the makeup of the bread and the, 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 the wine. But we don't believe that Jesus meant to teach his disciples and those who'd come after him that, that when the supper is observed that the, the elements literally become the body and the blood of Christ. And there are a handful of reasons for this. I'll just mention two. The first, and this is why I think it's the, the straightforward meaning, is that when he says, this is my body, what is speaking to them? It's the, the lips and, and the mouth and, and the, the head and, and the body of Jesus is actually speaking these words. And so they have his body before him or before them. His blood is, is, is going through his veins as he's administering this, this supper. So for him to mean that this meal was to be taken literally would be to convey an impossible understanding of what it means to be a physical human. Right? I love J.C. Ryle. He, he's an Anglican writing in, in the, the 18th century. He points out, if our Lord's body could sit at table and at the same time be eaten by the disciples, it's perfectly clear that it was not a human body like our own. So, so I think that's one reason. His body was there. And even now, as, as we partake, guess what? His body is not here. His body is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. His body was raised physically. He was ascended physically, and now he is in heaven physically. He's embodied now and will forever be. The first roots of our physical resurrected bodies. So that's the first reason. The second reason, Jesus uses symbolic language in other places, and we don't take him literally. Two instances, I am the door, he would say. And we don't look at that and say, well, what he really means is that he is a literal piece of wood on hinges that, that you have to go through. Or when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Right? He doesn't mean to be understood literally. So, so I, don't, I don't think it's out of bounds to, to understand Jesus to be speaking symbolically. This bread, this blood, which is tied to a Passover, it is all about me. It's my body and my blood always has been. And now you're going to see it play out before your very eyes. And so Jesus is not literally present every time we observe the supper. It's a memorial Symbolic representations of the actual body and blood. It's a call to remember what Christ has done for us. And so it's never less than that. A memorial representation, a a symbolic representation. But I do think the supper is more than merely a memorial. I think there is a sense in which Christ is present in the supper. But but that presence is, is, it's a spiritual presence presence, which is simply to say there's something more happening than people gathering and remembering something with some food. So so it's more than a meal after a funeral where you reminisce and tell stories about the deceased, right? It's more than that. And while there's nothing in and of the elements themselves to convey grace or, or spiritual benefit, I think there is grace, I think there is spiritual benefit to those who come to the elements in faith. 
Because those who are trusting in Christ, as we come to the table, our faith is in Christ, as we see these representations of his body and his blood, as they are represented physically to us, that they represent an actual body that was broken, an actual blood that was shed. They are not them, but they point to them. As we come to that, we are strengthened in our faith. Because we remember that there's a death on our behalf that pays for our sins. And so there is a strengthening for the people of God in the meal that Jesus commanded. How kind of Jesus to give us a regular reminder of his death for us on his behalf. J.C. Ryle again. The benefits it confers are spiritual, not physical. Its effects must be looked for in our inward man. It was intended to remind us by visible, tangible emblems of bread and wine that the offering of Christ's body and blood are for us on the cross. And this is the only atonement for sin. In the life of a believer's soul, it is meant to help our poor, weak faith to closer fellowship with our crucified Savior and to assist us in spiritually feeding on Christ's body and blood. It's an ordinance for redeemed sinners. And I think there is a real sense in which as the body of Christ comes together and observes the supper and remembers his death on our behalf, that we are strengthened spiritually. It's our food. It's our spiritual sustenance. It's, it's the feast that we partake of. And so while we don't believe that Christ is physically or literally present, I do believe there's a sense in which Christ is spiritually present and bestowing grace upon those who feed upon him in faith. So that there's personal benefit, there's a strengthening of the Christian's faith in the regular observance of the meal. This is why, as a church ordinance, the person who is neglecting gathering together with the church family is, is starving. It's a church ordinance. You can't go in your house and say, I'm going to observe the Lord's Supper. Jesus doesn't give it to every Christian. He gives it to the church to, to administer to God's people who have gathered together. And so it's no surprise that those who, who stray and neglect gathering together are often, not always, but are often spiritually wandering and weak Christians. They're neglecting the food that Jesus has provided for them. And so there's benefit for the Christian. There's a privilege of being a member of a church and observing the meal with brothers and sisters on a regular basis. This is why I think there's, there's also a benefit, in, and Paul would talk about this in 1 Corinthians 12 or 11, there, there's a unification of a local body as the body comes together to observe this meal. There's a, a unifying effect, and it benefits the church body as a whole. Finally, last thing to say, and, and I, I'm wondering how many of you are wondering if I'm going to say anything about the last verse. I skipped it, but I did so so I could come back to it now because this, na- this meal, it's temporary. Verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so this meal ends before the final hymn with this this hope-filled declaration. Jesus is saying, this is not the last time that I'm going to drink this meal. I'm going to celebrate with you, my my followers, in, in this feast. Jesus looks forward to a day when he will drink of the vine again, which is a a meal that Revelation chapter 19 talks about with the the feast of the lamb, the the feast of the sun. There's this end-time feast where all God's people will will eat and be satisfied in the presence of the sun. And that day's coming, but it's not here, which means that we observe this meal now until that day comes. 
as Paul says, we eat the bread and drink the cup, and in so doing, we proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes, which means when, when the Lord Jesus comes back, there'll be no more Lord's Supper. We'll have the Lord. We don't need a supper. We don't, we don't need representations. We will have the Lord, and we can rest assured he is coming, but until he does, we remember and proclaim his death by observing the meal that he has left us. A meal that symbolizes the death that's occurred on our behalf. Well, let, let me pray as we close, and then we'll sing in response.